Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Last summer, we devoted an entire episode to monarch butterflies and fireflies. And after that program, a listener suggested we do a similar episode focused on birds. Today, we'll do just that. We're going to be talking about bird watching, backyard feeders, solutions to the problem of birds hitting windows and creating conservation areas for birds, and much more. In the second half of the program, about a half an hour away, we'll be talking with Brian Dixon, who's done extensive work over many years with Bridgeland Audubon Society. Right now, a conversation with Kim Sullivan, ornithologist and USU biology professor, and Jack Green, naturalist and vice president of the Board of Trustees at Bridgeland Audubon Society. Well, let me start with you, uh, Kim Sullivan. I'm reading here you published important research in bird behavior. Ornithologist? Ornithologist. Or, ornithology. Animal behaviorist. Animal, how did you get into ornithology? What, what was the... Um, I always liked watching birds and finding bird nests and following them when I was a child. Yeah. So a childhood. Yes, childhood interest. interest. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Now, you know, sometimes we, a lot of children have that kind of an interest and then we grow, 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 grow is the wrong word. We, we drift out of it, right? You didn't. What no. Do you th- what do you think? You, you kept an interest in birds. Um, I just liked being outdoors, and I always liked going to school, and so I just kept going because <laughs> I never left. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Jack Green, what about you? What uh, the start in childhood? Interest in nature, outdoors, birds? Yes, I blame it primarily on my mother. Uh, mm-hmm. Raised up uh, as a feral child in northern Wisconsin, <laughs> <laughs> woods <good>. and fields. <laughs> And my mother and father, to a lesser extent, I just didn't see as much of him, but uh, she would, I remember when I was a little tiny toddler tripping over a lot of things, that she would take us for walks in the woods that surrounded our home there in northern Wisconsin, and it just continued on. Uh, Then I really got into fishing and hunting, and uh, a little later on, realized that, oh, I can look at a bird not through the sights of my shotgun, but uh, just without and maybe a pair of binoculars. Did that get you into birding? It did. And then I took a marvelous uh, ornithology class at Central Michigan University where we had an excellent uh, instructor. And he was, again, an avid birder, obviously, ornithologist, and birded by ear. And that got me going in that direction as well. So that whetted my appetite, so to speak. So he birded by ear? Yes. Attuned to the sounds of the... Right. So I know quite a bit of bird language, as I'm sure Kim does. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, so when they stop singing, I'm in trouble. Because (laughs) uh, I'm not nearly as good, and especially when the juveniles show up and they don't have their full colors and they can't sing well, even if they tried. So (laughs) So it does take, at least some species, it does take them time to learn, does it? It does. It's like a foreign language, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just start really differentiating different notes and inflections and and so on, syntax, and uh, it isn't long until, hey, there they are, and there's yeah. several hundred that uh, sing different songs, and I can pick them out pretty pretty well. Yeah, in their first summer, birds have a period of subsong where they sort of practice singing, and it doesn't sound quite like an adult song, but they have to go through that, and they have to hear themselves sing in order to be able to produce the adult song once the next spring. So they have to they have to listen to themselves. Yeah, and they have to hear themselves. Practice. They have to hear and, yeah. the adults singing, and then they have to practice themselves and hear themselves practice. Interesting. And then they'll be able to produce the song. I guess like like humans learning language, <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to ask him a question if it's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've heard from I don't know if it was a reliable source some time ago that the bird brain, <laughs> the part of the brain that accommodates singing and uh, and receiving song uh, actually enlarges during the breeding season so that yes. they are more efficient at it. And yes, so birds are, unlike mammals, birds actually turn on neurogenesis as adults. Oh, wow. And so the new cells are produced in the fourth ventricle and they migrate to the areas of the brain that control song. Yes. So for some species like parrots or canaries, they actually learn new elements every year. And then um, some cells die, and they can lose those elements. Are there a lot of species who are imitative? Uh, another, you know, parrots can parrot. That's what, you know, we <laughs> get the verb. Well, they can pick up, uh, you know, human, can mm-hmm. approximate very, very closely human language or other sounds, right? Yeah, ravens are very good, crows, mockingbirds, and even the starling. Yeah. So the starling will mimic other birds. Yeah. Interesting. What, uh, what's going on there? What's, what's the, I guess it's for a, a reason. Yes. Males that have a larger repertoire of sounds are more attractive to females. Ah, okay. 
Yeah, it's often about that, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a way of advertising. It's, it's, it's a way of advertising. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about birding. Uh, you know, birding is big, big, big activity, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, Kim can probably throw out some more recent stats, but I know over the years it has continued to grow. Of course, our population has grown as well, but the percent of our segment of our population send birding has over several decades now has been increasing. And I was amazed. I spent a fair amount of time in, in uh, England, uh, Germany, and so on. And over there, the birding is so big. It's just part of the culture. And everybody birds, you know, from the time you're very young, your family's out there going after it. But uh, if Kim would like to comment on that. But, yeah, it is a very yeah. hot topic and worth uh, billions and billions of dollars, actually. And it's really grown during the pandemic where people spent more time at home mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden noticing the birds that were in their backyard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It can be quite competitive, right? You, oh, yeah. There, you, the, the person who, who identifies the most amount of birds, right, kind of thing? Yes. There's a, a program, eBird, run by the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, where you can go in and see what birds are in the area, and you can enter in your own observations, and people compete to have the most observations. The big year, if you haven't seen that film, you really should. It's yeah. just really quite outstanding. It's all about birding, going to exotic parts of the planet to find a particular weird bird. I interviewed the author on his next book, which mm-hmm. was a obscure battle in World War II, but he found out about it through the through you know birding. He went to a, this remote island in uh, yeah, Lucian Island mm-hmm. in Alaska. Atu? Yeah, Atu. That's right. It's a big birding spot. Uh, yeah, hmm. I guess you can because there's zones, as I understand it, North American zone. But if you get to the extreme edge of the North American zone in Atu, right? Right. You, you, you can these, maybe collect some other birds. You get vagrants that just come yeah. across from um, Eurasia. That's right. It was Atu. Then this, so then his next book was the Battle of uh, on Atu. Anyway, I wonder uh, maybe some superlatives. Uh, do you have favorite birds just as, to observe or to study? Well, I did a lot of work on the yellow-eyed junco, um, which is sort of the relative of our of our dark-eyed junco here. And I just love watching chickadees. You know, they're I have a whole family in my backyard, and they come down to the bird feeder on the back porch and. And they sit there and they look at me, and they're just very curious, friendly birds. Uh, Jack, what about you? Yeah, I was thinking that I thought there might be a question of this type. So I, I've got my top five. I could ah. choose one of those and go for it. <laughs> or list your top five. <laughs> okay. The uh, dipper is one of my favorites. Uh, and I refer to them as the miniature penguins of the Rocky Mountains because they have so many behaviors like a penguin. In regards to, yeah, they love to fly around underwater and grab whatever they're foraging for, which might even be a small fish and snails and various types of invertebrates. But anyway, uh, yeah, and their feather arrangement and so on and ability to withstand extreme cold, wet places and so on, you know, kind of like a, a penguin in that regards. And they, they sing. They sing beautifully, and they sing through the year. It isn't just during the breeding season. They have feeding territories for certain segments of the stream that they will defend from any other uh, dipper trying to, to uh, occupy. So, uh, yeah, they're beautiful singers and bug catchers, and et cetera, et cetera. One more of the top five I'll just mention briefly is the uh, sandhill crane and another bird that loves to sing, and they also will sing beyond the breeding season. And not only do they sing, but they dance. Uh, So they have some human traits (laughs) in that regard. They sing and dance. And they're beautiful dancers. They're very elegant. And they toss things in the air and catch them and so on. And uh, also they like to paint their bodies, as some of us do. Uh, And if they find a reddish-colored soil, they will preen with it and go from a gray to more of a beautiful, uh, soft, brick-red color. Uh, Etc. So, yeah, just fascinating birds. You mentioned bug catchers. That brings me to a question. What what do birds do for the environment you know, or for us? Not that they have to, right? But <laughs> but uh, that's one function that birds do kind of in the cycle, right? Uh, what, what would you say? Well, they're, they're really important in insect control, especially for agriculture. Mm-hmm. So areas that have diminished bird populations for whatever reason end up having higher levels of uh, plant pests. And they're like they eat huge numbers of mosquitoes, mosquito larvae. Um, they really just you know ticks. They eat just large numbers of of the insects we don't really like. 
and pollinators. I'll oh. add pollination, which, of course, we know is really important for our purpose and for nature in general, ecological systems. And seed but, dispersers. Uh, and I was going to uh, mention that yeah, next. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Kim. We'd yes. otherwise be spending a huge <laughs> amount of money yeah. trying to disperse seeds <laughs> if we didn't have birds. And I was just wondering, so we have our feeders, and how does that? How might that interfere with their seed dispersal? Because they're not out there dispersing the native stuff necessarily, but at our feeders, black oil, sunflower seed, and a few others. But anyway, Kim, do you know? Oh, it probably is. I mean, black oil sunflower seed is much higher in nutrients than most of the native seeds Mm -hmm. that they're going to be eating. Mm -hmm. So they'll probably try to preferentially eat those. But because they don't want to stay in one spot too long, because that will attract raptors and predators to the area, they'll move around through their area. So they don't just eat sunflower Mm -hmm. seed. So are are we okay to it? Should we have backyard feeders? Sure. Okay. Just don't put them near your windows. Okay, yeah. We'll get into that. But uh, what are the, the big predators? Raptors, I guess, would be one. For, oh, for birds? For birds, cats. yeah. Cats. Domestic cats mm-hmm. are the largest predator. The largest predator, wow. Yes. And windows. About three billion birds a year are eaten by cats. Three billion. Domestic cats. Domestic cats wow. in the United States. Wow, amazing. I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So... Another problem, of course, is running into windows. So let's let's talk about that. You've you you're doing some research, have done, or doing some research on that. Yes, we've been doing research here on campus for the last couple of years, looking at birds flying into windows. Um, birds don't see the glass as a solid object, but humans don't either, because people often see someone walk into a patio door, but they see the either it's a clear space they can fly through, or they see the reflection of trees and clouds and sky. So we've been working on ways what you can do to as you design a building, what you can do to prevent it, and then once you have a building, what you can do to mitigate it. One of the big things we found is it's actually more important what's outside the window than the window itself. Interesting. So what so, you plant outside. Oh, the, the plants. The plants. Yeah. So what, what kinds of things do better than? Well, if you're planting trees outside of windows or bushes, they need to either be right up against the window or they need to be at least 30 feet away. Because otherwise the birds will take off going from one tree to another, but the other tree is just a reflection. And they reach speeds of um, 30 miles an hour within about 15 feet. And so that's going to be a problem if they, that's going to be a problem. If, if they hit there. I'm reading here some of, some of the, your, your research, some strategies using, is it fritted glass? Is that well, yes. If that? you're developing a new building on campus, we recommend you put fritted glass on, which is little ceramic dots are applied to the glass. Mm. This can be at like two by or four inch intervals, which will tell the birds that they shouldn't fly through that small space. But if you're a homeowner, you can get vinyl pieces of vinyl strips that you can apply and then remove the strip and leave the little dots at that interval. Or you can hang paracord at four inch inches apart. You could take tempera paint in your finger and just put little dots four inches apart. Um, but basically, birds don't want to fly through anything smaller than four inches in width and two inches in height. I see. So if you get something they, they can see. They can see that tells them yeah. they can't fly through it. Okay. What are uh, what are the most problematic buildings? Is it uh, I guess a bunch of glass? University Inn. University Inn, which is which is covered in uh, mirrored glass. Mirrored yeah. glass, yeah. which reflects, uh, and they've planted a grove of fruit-bearing ornamental pears nearby. That's a problem. And How, the uh, the fine art studios. Fine art studios, yeah. Glass with uh, fruit-bearing trees planted right outside. Okay. So obviously you're not going to tear down those buildings. How, how would no. you how would you mitigate those problems with well, those? Well, the art department is doing a competition to have designs. These will be cut out stencil designs that'll be cut out of like the bus wrappers you see where you can see out, but um, it looks solid from the outside. And they're going to do a student competition to design stencils for those windows. Okay. And for the University Inn, we are actually doing a study of looking at projecting UV images on the building. Because birds see in the UV range, but humans don't. Interesting. So projecting images that we couldn't see. But we won't see, but the birds could see. Are there, you know, I know birds have migratory patterns, etc. I don't know how wide or narrow those are. So if a building is in a, I don't know, a fly zone, is that a problem? Yes. That's that's why we have the Lights Out program. So there's a program called Lights Out Salt Lake. 
And one of the problems is that cities that are in the migratory flyways, which includes we're in the western one, that um, during migration, most small birds fly at night, and they're disoriented by seeing a lot of lights. And so we have these tall, lit-up buildings. They fly into the glass. So it's, a, it's an effort to get people to encourage them to turn off the lights on tall buildings at night during the fall and spring migration. Jack, I want to uh, talk about conservation. Kirsten, uh, mm-hmm. you're very interested in. And so with regard to birds, I'm, uh, conservation usually is connected to habitat, right? It is. Hugely, yes. I would say uh, that at least 60 or 70 percent of the bird loss has been due to habitat loss, and Kim may have better figures, recent figures on that, but I know there's a very substantial loss of birds due to to, uh, habitat loss. And tying in with that, of course, the changing climate is also changing some of those habitats uh, as they uh, go through their yearly cycle and so on. Uh, with earlier bloom, uh, which means, and perhaps earlier insect hatches that may not coordinate well with the migrants coming in that need a lot of insects and and so on. So a combination of of, uh, climate change and, of course, agriculture has been a huge influence on habitat loss around the world, and I'm speaking globally here. Yeah, so that's a big one. Uh, Certainly, we already mentioned (laughs) controlling your cats and, and changing your windows, et cetera. Um, but certainly uh, using toxic chemicals and so on, that too has been a, a real problem. And again, most of that goes for agriculture and these very large fields and, and uh, landscapes. So uh, that's another very large one. Hunting, not so much anymore because most uh, of the planet uh, has some pretty good laws of control when you can hunt and, and watching out you know, for numbers and and nesting seasons, et cetera. And certainly agriculture can tie in with that. We, For instance, locally here we have the bobolink, and we don't have too many of those that nest in the state, but we do have some here in Cache Valley. And uh, their nesting season may not coordinate with the farmers cutting their fields for hay. They, they really like the hay fields. So uh, working with agriculture, letting them know when these birds are present, might they you know, wait another few weeks to to cut their hay, for instance, and realizing that that's a sacrifice of, of the farmer, but uh, it, it's certainly something to address. We talked about feeders. A lot of the, those are popular. What can we do in our backyards? I, I talked, uh, interviewed Douglas Tallamy uh, a while back. But he, you know, he talks about, well, make your backyard into a conservation exactly. <laughs> habitat, right? So what can we do? Yes. Anytime you can enhance your your offerings, uh, your plants, and so on, and the bloom that comes on, et cetera, uh, for birds and, and their needs. Uh, you certainly, the birds are better off for it, and plus you have, a, in, my, in my view at least, a more aesthetic and pleasing landscape that goes with that, and water-efficient in many cases, yeah. using yes. native plants, et cetera. And what having you a say source about? of water helps, too. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, especially if we've had this drought this summer, a lot of times birds are not just looking for food, but they're looking for water during the day. I imagine drought affects everything, including birds. Yes. Yes, we've had a lot of reports throughout the West that with the high heat that um, raptor chicks were in their nests. Their nests are usually quite exposed at the top of trees or on cliffs. Um, one of the things is to avoid being too chilly because they tend to you know, breed early in the year. But they were getting over it so hot with the high temperatures that they were actually leaping out of their nests onto the ground to try to get away from the heat. And rehabilitators were going around and picking up um, birds with broken legs, broken wings. They couldn't fly yet and um, you know, trying to rehab them. We have, uh, of course, the migratory bird refuge pretty close here. Does that have an effect on our area? It definitely does. Yeah. Uh, when they start experiencing, especially high water back in uh, 83, 84, uh, where it inundated uh, a lot of their former habitat in the migratory, in the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge, we actually had some uh, bald faced ibis that were looking for other places to settle, and they came our way. And we ended up with a significant population, several thousand bald-faced ibis. And uh, they took up residence here. They're colonial nesters, so you would get, uh, well, 1,000-plus nesting in one area, and they really liked to cut their marsh. 
uh, a few years ago, and Kim and I were working on this together, they actually, <laughs> they disappeared. <laughs> but uh, a, a note of interest for Kim is uh, I've been working with uh, Darren Perry and the, the Shoshone people on kind of documenting bird activity out on their, their parcel on the Bear River Massacre site. And we have a, a large number of ibis that utilize that area. And when they leave, after they've done some feeding in flooded fields that they have out there, a lot of wetland, wet meadows and so on, they all go to the same area. So I'm thinking there might be a rookery that Kim and I need to figure out up yes, there. Yes, I think they, mm -hmm. we yeah. have heard information that they may have moved north. Yes, and, from, I, they, and this Valley. would be north. So they yeah. fly north and do a quick turn back to the west. So yeah. I think they're up at the head of what's called Battle Creek or Beaver Creek. Take your pick for that, that stream, watershed area. And we have here in between the uh, Great Salt Lake areas and up in Cache Valley, about 90% of the world's population of white-faced ibis. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting, yeah. Of course, uh, area in northern Utah we're talking about, you know, Cache Valley, normal years is has more water than a lot of places. Our listening audience will be, you know, extended into Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. And they're, um, you know, there's, I imagine there's uh, birds who thrive in the desert out there, in Red Rock country. Oh, definitely. Yeah. In fact, I've done quite a bit of birding. Uh, Red Cliffs Audubon, as it's called, down in the, the uh, Mojave Desert and, and the Colorado Desert, which is our Red Rock uh, desert country. And, uh, yeah, we pick up many species down there that we don't have up here, which is really exciting. I mean, I found the pygmy nut nuthatches, which are one of my favorites, mm -hmm. and the uh, woodpecker uh, that uh, I'm, I'm having acorn, Kila? excuse me, oh, ac acorn, acorn, acorn woodpecker <laughs> <laughs> that I happened onto in Zion National Park. In fact, when I was working with Zion National Park, uh, what, uh, 12, 14 years ago now, I was able to get them listed as an IBA, which I wanted to say that also our bird sanctuary, the amalgam. Uh, or the Barrens Bird Sanctuary, are listed as important bird areas, which is an international program that, uh, yeah, identifies those areas that have special significance for migra migrating birds and nesting birds uh, and connectivity to major flyaways, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, Zion qualified because they have such a diversity of, of bird life there. It's yeah. quite phenomenal. Anything you'd particularly like to say before we close here? I teach ornithology, and every year I teach students who have never looked at a bird. They take the course, you know, to meet some requirement or get an elective. They've heard it was a fun course, and they're always amazed. That they tell me, like, wow, there's a whole lot more birds here this year than other years <laughs> because they've never noticed. Right. Ah. We go to places all over the, you know, Cache Valley, and they never noticed those places existed. And so I've turned a number of people into lifelong birders. So I would say just... You know, grab a pair of binoculars. There's really handy. It's called um, Merlin. It's a free app from the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Put it on your phone and just go out there and start birding. Jack, what would you say? Yeah, uh, something we touched on earlier, which is uh, since we've lost so much habitat, uh, anytime you can landscape for wildlife, including birds, Please do. And it also works for grandkids, I found, very well. <laughs> okay, get rid of the toxic stuff and make a variety of shrubs and trees and flowers and so on. It just enhances it in so many ways. So think about uh, adding more habitat for birds. Yeah. Well, thank you to you both. Thank you. Interesting discussion. Thank Appreciate you, Tom. It. Thank you, Tom. On Access Utah today, we're devoting the entire hour to birds. And we heard there from Jack Green, naturalist and vice president of the Board of Trustees at Bridgeland Audubon Society, and Kim Sullivan, ornithologist and USU professor of biology. Following a brief break, we'll continue this theme with a conversation with Brian Dixon. He'll tell us about some of the extensive work he's done over many years with Bridgeland Audubon Society. this part of the program, we're talking with uh, Brian Dixon. We want to talk about his involvement with Bridgeland Audubon Society and uh, uh, various areas uh, included there. But uh, maybe to get started with this, uh, Brian Dixon, uh, how did you get involved? Well, Tom, I, I made one of those mistakes that a number of people made with Alan Stokes, which is to express interest. <laughs> so I was between, I was between jobs and uh, showed up at a Bridgeland Audubon Society board meeting because I was curious about what they were up to. 
And for those of your listeners that remember Alan Stokes, he was the sort of guy that would could kind of buttonhole you and ask you and just, and well, he would tell you that he had a project that he had in mind that you would just be perfect for. And sometimes that would follow him having caught your eye across the room, you know, lots of people. And, uh, and you knew several things. You knew, first of all, that the project, whatever it was, was going to involve a lot of time, a lot of time. And you also knew that it would probably involve a substantial amount of money, you know, contribution mm-hmm. on your part. And it would be a real pain in the neck at times. But the other thing that you knew was when you were done, you would, you would be really glad you had done it. So Stokes had a had just an uncanny way of matching people to capabilities. And so when I attended that board meeting, I think he realized that I was interested in this sort of thing, and he got me involved in a number of projects. So yeah. that's how I got started in Bridgeland Audubon. Did you always have an interest in birds, nature, that kind of thing? No. I, I Well, I've always had an interest in nature. Um, I, I grew up in the country, and... And we uh, we would play in the fields and around the house and so forth. And I had my three brothers to play with, and that was it. So we had we had to be pretty creative, I suppose. But um, my interest in birds really blossomed once I moved to Utah. Um, and I'm from the East Coast, so that's kind of I kind of regret not having been so interested in birds back there. But really, it was my interest in environmental issues and environmental um, protection that stimulated my interest in birds. And I'd always been an outdoors person, hiking and climbing and skiing and whatnot. And, and so birds just added another layer to appreciation or another facet, another another uh, dimension of being out of doors. And, and I really cherished it. So it's been, it's, it's offered a lot of rich experiences for us. Let's talk about uh, some of the projects you've been involved in the Bridgerland Audubon uh, Society. Uh, let's start with the Christmas bird count. Uh, this, uh, okay. the, the, with Bridgerland Audubon Society, uh, began in 1956, I understand? Right. So the Christmas bird count originated in the year 1900 in New England or New York City. And it, it originated as an alternative to the Christmas side hunt, where people would go out after Christmas dinner and shoot things, shoot wildlife. And this is really before, oh, and whoever came back with the most number of things shot won the prize sort of thing. This is really before people appreciated that nature was really limited and uh, and there were constraints uh, on carrying capacity and, and the ability of nature to rebound and so forth. So that really began as an alternative to to look at birds and count birds. And so it has become, over more than a century now, uh, it has become the world's largest citizen science project. The the protocol is you you go out during a three-week period and you count all of the birds that you can find within a 15-mile diameter circle. And uh, so that becomes the count circle. And as of, you know, this past year, there are something like 2,200 count circles in the Western Hemisphere. And so Logan started, actually the oldest Christmas bird count that's been done continuously pretty much, was in Provo. And that started, I think, in 1904. And so Logan started its count in 1956. And uh, we've missed a couple of, couple of years in all of that. But 2020 was our 61st count. And um, it's intriguing because we'll often see more than 100 species and this is in December, late December. So we we usually do it the first Saturday after we can start, which after they'll let us start, which is December 14th. So the first Saturday after that, and uh, we'll often have you know more than 50 people participating, and it starts before dawn and goes until dusk, sort of thing. And uh, and during that time, even in late December, we'll find you know 100 species of birds in in this count circle, which is which is centered in Hyde Park uh, for us. And one of the reasons is that we have such a diversity of habitats. So we have marshes and we have mountains and we have fields and we have urban areas. And there are different kinds of species that, that 
prosper and, and thrive in those different kinds of habitats. So I think that's what makes it so rich. Where's the information go? Is there a big database somewhere? It is a huge database. And and uh, people can Google Christmas Bird Count. It's a National Audubon Society program. So uh, there's a link to it. It's buried somewhere in in National Audubon Society's webpage. It's a, it's a, a dense website, of course, because it's got a lot of information. But if you drill down in there, you can actually download a PDF of any count circle. And you can find count circles on a map, and you can download data from all of the years or any years of interest um, from any count circle that has ever been done. So it, it goes back to the very beginning. So uh, another area you've been involved with with Bridgeland Audubon Society is um, environmental education. Maybe we could talk about Econet first. Oh, sure. And, uh, you know, this really, environmental education really fits into Audubon in general and Bridgeland Audubon in particular. I I think Alan Stokes, going back to to him, he was an educator. He he came to Logan um, as a professor of wildlife. And um, and he taught at Utah State University and retired from Utah State University. So he was always very, very interested and intent on educating and, and really understood the joy of discovery about nature and, and tried to instill that in people. So that's really where it came from and, and has led to the mission statement for Bridgeland Audubon Society, which is, which is pretty simple. Uh, it reads, protecting the nature of Utah the people and wildlife. So there's an emphasis both on people and on critters. And of course, nature itself involves more than just animals and, and people it involves plants as well. And, and the whole ecosystem, the whole complex network that makes up the environment. So in thinking about that, we started, I mean, and Audubon has always been an advocacy organization. So they've all been trying, they've always been trying to promote good stewardship of the world that that we live in because it's our environment too. It's not just the environment of creatures. So the Econet was an email distribution list that started, oh, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe? Pretty much as soon as there was email available for people, we started using that. And it serves as a, as a way to educate people and inform them and uh, and also call them to action, that is advocacy on, on various issues. So Econet has been going on probably the longest of any of the environmental education, you know, formal type environmental education projects that we've been doing. Uh, Stokes Nature Center, you, you've been involved, Ridgeland Audubon Society has been involved in the Stokes Nature Center. Yeah, that the Stokes Nature Center, of course, is located in, in Logan Canyon, um, near the mouth of the canyon, and, and it's considered a log structure that's on the uh, right side of the highway as you drive up the canyon. It was really Jack Green's idea to start that thing. And um, it came together in uh, about 19, or started in 1995 or 1996, when Jack Green and his sons would go up there and uh, would actually stay at this building, which was, well, degraded really doesn't capture it. (laughs) There were holes in the roof. Uh, rain came in, people had built fires on the floor. It was an old a veterans, I guess. Well, it was first, the first part of it was built in, in the 20s after World War I. And then it, uh, it was expanded in the 50s uh, by the, the veterans after those wars and, and served as a meeting place for them. And they gave it to the Boy Scouts in sometime in the late 80s or 1990, early 1990s. But it really, really languished. I don't think the Boy Scouts really didn't really fit what they were doing. And so Jack had the idea to open up a nature center that would be similar to the Ogden Nature Center down in Ogden. And so we took that building and rebuilt it from ground up. Had many, many, oh, I don't know, 50-some thousand dollars of donations and thousands of hours of volunteer time and uh, just built, rebuilt that thing from the inside out. And uh, Glenn Gantz was pretty much the chief or the general contractor for that old effort. So hats off to him. He gave up a year of his life, you know, working on that project. And we opened it in 1997. So in 2022, it'll be 25 years old. And um, together with the First Presbyterian Church, 
Bridgeland Audubon Society um, was able to, um, to really start a center that, you know, for, for 25 years now, primarily fourth and fifth graders, you know, is really the focus of a lot of that, although they do a lot of adult education as well. But it's really the idea is to expose people to the richness of the natural world and stimulate their inquisitiveness and and get them to learn or have the opportunity to learn about how the world works, you know, how the natural world works. Let's talk about another uh, instance of environmental education. It's a partnership with uh, with us, with Utah Public Radio. So, Wild About Utah, which is a which is a great partnership. It's been going on for a while now. Yeah, it has. It's uh, it's almost thirteen years. I think it started in two thousand eight, and uh, there's something like a hundred and seventy episodes. So, it's a three or four minute um, weekly program that's that's recorded in audio. And with a, just a, there have been a variety of authors and people recording those various episodes. So there's something like 45 categories that you can you can explore on all kinds of stuff. And it's been oh I don't know I couldn't even guess how many different authors there have been for those projects. But you know readers can just look at wildaboututah.org, I think, on the website, or they can get to it either from Bridgeland Audubon's site or, or Utah Public Radio. And uh, they can explore all all kinds of stuff on there. It's, it's just really intriguing. It's been a huge success, I think. And uh, you can hear it broadcast in Morning Edition and All Things Considered uh, various other times throughout the week on uh, on Utah Public Radio. It's a great, great partnership. We're happy to be in that with you. Let's talk about the the next kind of the general area. You've been heavily involved in habitat protection. Maybe a place to start there is the wetlands maze at, at Cutler Marsh. This is in, in Cache Valley, right? Yeah, yeah. So Cutler Marsh is a huge, I don't know, 12 square mile or 20 square mile. It's, it's just a huge wetland area out in the center of the valley that impounds water that Pacificorp, uh, which is a seven-state power company, Pacificorp uses that to generate hydropower which is very, very important in, in the mix and of, of electrical energy for us in, in the Northwest. So um, they have to relicense that dam through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission every 20 or 30 years. And the most recent relicensing was in 1995, and they're in the middle of relicensing it again. And that license, I think, renews in 2024 or 2025. But back in 1995, they, they developed a resource management plan. And part of that plan involved working with community entities uh, in something they called a Green Corps grant. So we worked with the Pacific Corps to designate the southern half of Cutler Reservoir, which is really south of the Benson Bridge and the Benson Marina, designate that part of the, of the reservoir as the wetlands maze. And the idea is that we would protect that part of the marsh. It was really a combination of a number of different kinds of wetlands, from riverine systems and riparian systems and upland fields and meadows and playas and emergent marshes and even open water, of course, to preserve that as relatively intact and rich habitat for people and to serve, uh, you know, all of the different values or ecosystem services that wetlands provide, and they could really give examples for those. So Pacific Corp gave us a, uh, a small grant. It was like $2,000 or something. We matched it with DWR money or Division of Wildlife Resources money. And, uh, and volunteer labor and so forth. And we put together a website called the Wetlands Maze. And again, people can just Google that nowadays and, and pick it up. And there's, there's quite a bit of education there and quite a bit. There's maps in there about that offer trails, canoe trails and walking trails, you know, around Cutler Reservoir. And uh, also describe a lot of the gas values of wetlands and, and how wetlands work and and different types. So there's a lot of educational materials there as well that, that students, you know, middle, middle school students or high school students 
probably even college students can use the launching point to to understand wetlands and, and how they function. So that's that was a I think a really successful project, and uh, and it's you know still going on now almost twenty years later. I understand this is it, uh, something called an important bird area of hemispheric importance. Oh right, I, I should have mentioned that. So. It was designated, I guess, really around 2010 as an important bird area, and which was a program that was established by BirdLife International and was then picked up by National Audubon Society to work with private landowners primarily, um, but also, I guess, also public landowners to designate areas that were very, very important for birds, either migrating birds or birds that stick around all year round, and um, what we discovered when we started to do censuses out there to qualify it as an important bird area, we found a rookery of white-faced ibis, which is kind of a strange bird. It's um, a dark, dark brown, um, purplish bird. It has long legs, and, and its major characteristic is this long schnozzola. It's got this long bill, this decurved bill, which kind of ends up pointing down. And they use that bill to probe around the grasses and the mud, and they can actually feel crustaceans or, or macroinvertebrates under the mud, and then they'll snarf them right up. So that bird, uh, like many bird species, nests in colonies. And they had established a colony of nests in Cutler Reservoir on a small island out there that really was home to 5% is more than 5% of the hemispheric population of white-faced ibis. So right there in Cutler Reservoir um, was just a, a crucial habitat for that species. And uh, we were able to document that and, and count them um, to, to prove how valuable it was. And we still see those white-faced ibis flying around in the valley. You'll see them in long lines of birds um, in, in spring and summer as they return to their rookeries, having fed, you know, in all the the inundated grasslands and and, and the croplands, the the grasses and the crops that that are flood irrigated, and that's really what where the feeding habitat is is preferred. So, talking about wetlands, uh, you've outlined uh, some of the, the benefits uh, for birds and other species. Maybe we could emphasize the benefits for, for us, for humans. Sure. Yeah, wetlands are, are, just, are just rich uh, in terms of things called ecosystem services by scientists. That is, services provided that you would otherwise have to pay for that are provided by the natural ecosystem. And, and includes wetlands include things like purifying water by trapping pollutants, making that water available for plants generating biomass, uh, that sort of thing. They also control floods because wetlands delay the runoff. They slow it down. So they make, they take the peakiness, as it were, out of the, the storm flows and, and, and delay that, that flow downriver. They also capture sediment, which controls erosion and prevents uh, sedimentation into the stream, which, which can result in water quality problems. And, uh, and for people, they, of, they often offer solace that is quiet. The, the reeds and canary grass and, and the, uh, the cattails and the sedges and bulrushes kind of knock the, the sounds down and make it uh, a peaceful place to be. So worms are just really, really valuable. So still under the heading of habitat uh, conservation, habitat protection, uh, tell us about the Barron's Sanctuary. Barron's Sanctuary is 150 acres, more or less, of of land that we purchased from Pacific Corp back in 2003 or so. And it's along 7,000 North, which is a dirt road out by Amalga. And it borders or it's both banks of the Clay Slough, which is a natural drainage out of the Barron's area in that in that part of the county. And it provides really a sanctuary for shorebirds and waterfowl. So we don't allow hunting there. 
and birds can can go there and rest and feed. So it serves birds during spring migration and during the summer when they're nesting and, and laying eggs and hatching out their young, and then the fall when migratory birds are are needing a place to refuel for their, their migration south. So we purchased that from Pacific Corp, and, and it allowed Pacific Corp actually to finish off uh, the resource management plan that they had developed for Cutler Reservoir. They're sort of running out of budgeted funds for that. So our purchase of this of this land from them that they really didn't need, it really didn't fit their their needs for Cutler Reservoir and, and hydropower generation didn't fit that at all. So it was really surplus land for them. So we bought that from them and allowed them to finish off their, their resource management plan. So that was a that was a real win win. And uh Pacific Corp all along has been a really good partner for us in, in on a variety of projects. And so we're we're really tickled. That worked out really well. Tell us about uh, private lands protection. You've been involved in several of these projects. Well, of course, the West has a lot of public lands. After all, all of the West was really acquired by the Eastern states, one way or another, either through war or purchase, from Mexico or France or Russia. Um, all of the Western United States was acquired after the 13 colonies were established and created the United States of America. So there's a lot of public lands in the West, and those public lands provide just a wide variety of values for wildlife and nature and, and so forth. But public lands are not the only uh, reserves that are important. There are private lands that are also very, very important. So to protect those private lands, you really need to work with a private landowner who has an interest in doing that. And what we find is that some private landowners want to protect their ground after they pass away. So they're interested in, I mean, perhaps they've farmed this ground uh, for, for years, you know, for decades, and their kids don't want to farm it anymore. That's kind of a classic. And, and yet they, they don't want to see a housing development on it because they've, They've, they've bled and sweat on that ground, you know, for, for years and years and years, and they know it intimately, and so they want to see it protected. But how do you do that, you know, after you pass away? And so the mechanism that has evolved is something called a conservation easement, where a private landowner agrees through contract to some restrictions on that ground that bind future landowners, whoever owns that ground in the future. So the parlance is that it runs with the land. And so you need someone to hold those rights to protect those restrictions, and that is typically a land trust. So Audubon worked with the Pacific Corp to protect about 500 acres of ground near Trenton, just kind of northeast of the, of the central town of Trenton. And that's, that's referred to the Bear River Bottoms, the northern section of the Bear River Bottoms. But that's only 500 acres of about 1,900 acres that Pacific Corp purchased in 1981 as a result of a lawsuit having to do with flooding, with natural flooding of floodplains. So Pacific Corp worked with Bridgeland Audubon Society to protect those 500 acres in perpetuity. That is forever. They will never be developed. So Audubon then realized that that would be very difficult for a volunteer organization to protect forever. And so Bridgeland and Audubon Society started something called the Bear River Land Conservancy, which is a formal land trust. And um, you can find that on the internet too. Just Google Bear River Land Conservancy. And, um, and so they work, they work with Pacific Corp to protect uh, more of those 1,900 acres. And they also hold conservation easements in Rich County and protect some land in Menden and, you know, and so forth. So that was another area of habitat protection that it focuses instead of on public lands, focuses on private lands. And that's been a, a real success, too, I think. Concluding Access Utah, that is Brian Dixon talking about work over the years with Bridgeland Audubon Society. By the way, we have more with that conversation with Brian Dixon. We'll have that on our website. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Utah Lake was once an important and abundant source of fish and wildlife for the Timpanogos Ute people. 
but by the turn of the 20th century, Utah Lake's native fish species had almost completely vanished. Learn what happened after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Prior to Mormon settlement in 1849, Utah Valley was home to the most abundant fisheries in the Intermountain West. Native species such as cutthroat trout, suckers, whitefish, and chubs thrived in Utah Lake and nearby Provo River, making up a third of the diet of the local Timpanogos Utes, who were known as the fish eaters. Yet in half a century's time, due to mismanagement of the fish population by white settlers, all of these unique native species were either endangered or extinct. Mormon settlers made drastically different use of the land than the Timpanogos people, relying more on agriculture than hunting and fishing. This required extensive diversion of streams for irrigation, which altered water levels and blocked native trout and suckers from reaching their spawning areas. The fish that were able to spawn in streams made easy and plentiful prey for Mormon settlers who harvested them for sale, but this practice was detrimental to the fish life cycle. Waste from livestock also polluted fish habitats. The impact of all these factors was noticeable enough that by 1866, the territorial legislature began to regulate fishing practices. During the 1880s, the territorial government attempted to replenish the waters with new species of fish. Carp were introduced into ponds near the Jordan River and directly into Utah Lake. At the time, carp were considered a superior food fish, though by the 1890s, wildlife managers would sour on carp, considering them worthless. Still. Utah planners continued to introduce sport fish such as bass, bullhead, and catfish through the end of the century. These invasive species competed with and even fed on native species, which were already facing diminished numbers. Utah legislators continued their attempts to establish conservation measures into the 20th century, but to little avail. Today, only two of Utah Lake's 13 native species still swim in its waters, the June sucker and the Utah sucker. Even when the growing settler population benefited from the valley's abundance, mismanagement of natural resources led to the collapse of this valuable fishery. A quick fix remedy only made matters worse. Will Utahns today learn from this mistake or risk repeating it? Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.